We're, we're back in 1 Corinthians this morning um, after an extended hiatus over the Christmas break and, and the beginning of the new year here. Wasn't expecting maybe that it was going to be this long of a break, um, but after Christmas, after our Advent series, I felt like there was a, a mini-series that the Lord had for us during prayer and fasting and some messages. And so um, now, we're, now we're back into 1 Corinthians, and what, what a way to get back into it. Um, when we look at this chapter. And uh, the first verse uh, also happens to be your memory verse. How many of you enjoy our memory verse in the bulletin? It's, it's a great one this week. First uh, Corinthians 7 verse 1, hope that you've memorized this one. No one came up with this one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. No? No one memorized that? It's in the Bible, folks. It's okay to laugh. <laughs> Checking if anyone's paying attention. It's when we put memory verses in the bulletin. This is a doozy this week. I think we're going to need to unpack that verse. We're going to unpack that this morning. So this chapter as a whole in Corinthians, I, I, when I got... Into, back into looking at it and, and really just spending time in it the last couple weeks, I was like, oh man, all right, here we go. So it's a way to get back into 1 Corinthians. But we're going we're gonna to provide some um, context around it. And it's, it's fairly long, so we're not gonna, I'm not going to read nearly the whole chapter. Um, you can go on your own time, and I'd encourage you, you can read 1 Corinthians 7 if you'd like. Um, I'm going to be jumping around a little bit in it. Really what I want to do is, is just have a few uh, specific points from the chapter. And, you know, there's, there's also this cultural context here that we have to work through in, in this chapter. And there's several of these, I mean, in the New Testament. We've just got to unpack what is culture. Um, but there's gold here, too, for our relationships, and for how we walk with Jesus. And so hopefully we're going to be able to unpack that this morning. And, you know, we, how many of you have heard the term, I mean, I think we've probably all heard it, but the term, the separation of church and state. Pretty, pretty big topic actually right now in our world. It, it, it's, especially in the U.S., there's always this, this, talk, this discussion about it. But growing up, uh, I experienced the separation of what I would call church and home. And again, Dwayne has no idea. He just prayed about that in my life. And so there was this image that I grew up with of we were a Christian family. Like, like any Christian family, we went to church on Sundays for the most part. From what I can remember, we were probably there, like probably 85% attendance. I don't know. It was pretty good. And there was that life. And then there was the other life at home. And I don't know if any of you can identify that, but it was a very different type of life. And, and I'm not speaking of like typical family arguments on the way to church. And that, I know that happens. Um, I, I'm talking about deep-rooted issues in our family that Jesus wasn't touching. And so we sought to portray an image being this typical Christian family, but starting with my parents and their marriage, and then obviously filtering down into our home, and my sister and I, there was 
areas where the gospel just wasn't touching. It, it, it was not impacting our lives. And, and the thing is, when I look at it now, or, or even growing up, you begin to realize, I knew that my parents' marriage wasn't healthy. Like, even from a young age, you begin to see the, the threads, you're going, this isn't right. Or then you go into other homes that are fair more, a lot more functional, and you're like, okay, there, there's something that isn't right here. And, and that's very unsettling as a child, right? When, we, when you begin to realize these things, there, it's very unsettling for you as a person. And so the realization of this comes from me going back, looking at my past. Um, th- there's all sorts of walking through that, being willing to go there and, and open up that box and begin to just flush out what, what happened. And set free as an example, we, that, that's been part of my journey. Um, that, that's a tool that, that's used to just unpack and get rid of stuff and, and deal with, with stuff in your past that's hanging on to you. But it's also, it's, I mean, it's so much more than that. But I, I say all that because the only reason that I am standing up here and have a wonderful family is because of the power of Jesus. That's it. That is the reason that I am where I am. And I I say that because the gospel of Jesus Christ sets us free if we admit that we need freedom and if we go seeking and pursuing that freedom. Then that freedom will surely set us free. There is no doubt because Jesus has paid the price. So I I say that because before we get into 1 Corinthians 7 and talk about how the work of Jesus in our lives affects those who are married, those who are single, and and really everyone else, because Paul touches on everyone else in 1 Corinthians 7, I want to lay out the big picture of what Paul, where he's been getting to in 1 Corinthians, because it it provides really the context for what he's saying in this chapter. We kind of, again, remember that this letter is uh, is being read in the church all the way through. So they're not stopping and, and parceling out this part and then preaching on this part. It's, it's being all read through. And so what Paul was saying in what we now know as the first chapter, just the beginning of the letter, was flowing all the way through what he's saying in the rest to the church. And so I want to say this. Wherever anyone is, when we come to receive Jesus, the presence of God's Spirit in us is designed to bring radical change in our lives. And nothing short of that at all. Transformation, renewal, change, all of that, that is the gift that our Heavenly Father offers us. It is complete and utter change to be more like His Son. And so I want to I pull back and... Have us remember what Corinthians says to us as saints. Those who have accepted Jesus are walking with his spirit inside of them. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 5. It says that we have been enriched in Jesus in all speech and knowledge. 
Think about that. That, that, like that enriched means it's been added to us. So all, all the enrichment of speech and knowledge has been put into us. And then Paul goes on later in 1 Corinthians 1.23, talks about how I, we preach Christ crucified. So this is the bedrock of our faith. That's it. Salvation from our sins. The wisdom and the power of God. Christ crucified. It's amazing. Then he, then he talks in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1 about how those following Jesus, those in Christ, Paul always talks about those in Christ. He became to us, says, wisdom. It really just means God saves sinners. God saves us. He's become to us righteousness. He takes my filthiness and he gives me Jesus' perfect righteousness. He's become to us sanctification. That's the process of holiness in our lives. That he is committed to working this in us. And he's become to us redemption. We're rescued. We're protected. That's what it means to be redeemed. It also says there that God chose what is is low and despised in the world talking about us. God God chose what is low and despised in the world. We have to come to grips with our depravity. That we are really, really, really in serious trouble. That sin is serious. That our depravity is serious. So that, Paul says, so that we might not boast in the presence of God. So that if we think in any way that we've got stuff in us that we can make ourselves good enough, Paul says, you need to recognize that you were so low and despised when God chose you. You didn't do it. We come to grips with our brokenness, our lostness, and our deep need. Paul says to me, he says, I, I came to you in weakness. He says to them. And then he says more than once in the letter, he says, be imitators of me. So imitate how I came to you in weakness and trembling. The most important truth about me, the most important truth, if you want to know about Paul Martins, is that I am a depraved sinner who is in need of the saving mercy of Jesus Christ. And I have received that mercy, and because of that, I am completely different. That is the single most important thing about me. I was a sinner. I was lost. I was depraved. I had no hope apart from Jesus rescuing me. That's the gospel. We need this context as we get into 1 Corinthians 7. Because this is what the Corinthians were being reminded of by by Paul. And then he says later in, in what we know as the sixth chapter, he says, but you were washed, you were made holy, you were made acceptable in the name of Jesus. What an astounding truth. Now, the, the reason why Paul was reminding the Corinthians of, of who they were in Christ and who they are, and what, what has been given to them, is because 
they, they, they had an inclination to live like they felt like living. They just wanted to live like their feelings were leading them. And the reality was that some of the Corinthians were living with this premise, I can do what I want. In fact, Paul addresses it more than once, where he's, he uses that term they're using there about all things are lawful for me. And there was this term being bantered around, like all oh, things, I can do whatever I want. And Paul reminds them, he says, your, your bodies are meant for the Lord. Your physical body is joined with Jesus. He says, your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, meaning God's presence lives in you. And he says, this, this reality, this truth of what God has done and, and what he has done inside of you actually impacts how you live with your physical body. He says, because God's presence dwells in us, you're not your own. He says, the reason you're not your own is you were bought with a price. Now that price, you know, that's a, that's a line we hear there. You were bought with a price. That, that is like, that's the biggest thing. It's the, the price is the death of God's son. The price is Jesus hanging on a cross, bleeding, whipped, scourged, gouged, dying painfully. That's the price. So glorify God with your body and in your body. So that's the implication, Paul says, that the, the proper response, if you will, says is you need to glorify God with your body. This flies in the face of culture so much. Like, culture has... They don't know what to do with that kind of thing. And culture is so pervasive in our lives. So, so, so pervasive. So the reality is there has to be a really strong motivation in us if we're going to live according to what we're, we're reading here in, in Corinthians. So this, this issue of rights, and Paul's going to get into it more in, in the next few chapters with the Corinthians, he really starts to, to hone in on this thing of their rights and what they think they, their rights are. I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever feels good sexually. No commitment. It's about me and my personal happiness and my personal satisfaction. That, that was what was going on in Corinth. Now I want to ask us a question. Do we think that God the Father's intent in this, in our lives, is to be a killjoy. Do you think that the Father's intent for his children is to just kill us? He, he's, he created us. He created us with desires. He created us with physical bodies. He created all of us. So is his intent to just now squash it and to be a killjoy? No. But... We can think this, like that the Father comes and he's going to suppress my natural desires. He's going to take away my pleasure and my fun. I think that is a real temptation for us to actually buy into or partly buy into those things. 
Or maybe, you know, maybe we think this. Like, why, why is Paul even getting into this thing of like my personal relationships and sexuality? Why? Why? How, why is he talking about our relationship with God and walking in relationship with Jesus and my sexual desires and my practices? Why, why, is, why do those two things even have to join? Why, why is he connecting the gospel with our personal relationships and those practical implications of those relationships? I wonder sometimes if we, we think about that, like if we're wondering that because we are so conditioned now in our world to, we're, we're taught this from a young age and condition to separate our spiritual beliefs that they can be separated from our sexual behavior. My sexual behavior is my sexual behavior. It's, my, my spirituality is, is that's, that's something else. We compartmentalize our biology and our spiritual practices. So, I think a careful examination of chapter 7 is, is important. And I believe the, the key is, is here in this, this chapter for us. I actually think there's a couple keys Verse 35 in chapter 7, Paul speaks about undivided devotion to the Lord. That you may have undivided devotion to the Lord. That, and, and he says it in the context of whether married, single, or wherever you find yourself, this is to define your life. The other interesting thing that this struck me as I was, I was reading through this chapter and I, I read through it and I was listening to it on audio too and just trying to just get a real, okay, Lord, what are, you, what are you saying? What's the flow? What's the connecting points? And it speaks in two verses, verse 17, verse 24, and you, it speaks about being called to. Paul talks about how you, what you were called to. And so it got me thinking, okay, He's, he's, he's speaking about something specific. Like they, he's expecting that they know what they've been called to. You were called to. He doesn't. So I thought, okay, what, what is that? That struck me. So I went back and I started to just read through the beginning part of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9 says, it talks about how we were called. You were called into the fellowship of Jesus. I read that and I was like that's it that's Paul's going back to that you were called into relationship with Jesus to abide in unbelievably close union with him that is not for pastors or just missionaries, or just worship leaders, or whatever categories we'd want to put on that stuff. This is the invitation for everyone. Every single person in Christ, you are called into fellowship with Jesus. And following Jesus calls us to live to his example. You are not your own. 
You know why Paul says that? You are not your own. Because that's exactly the way that Jesus lived. Jesus lived. I'm I'm here to do the will of the Father. I'm not living for my own self. Now, this is not some horrible treachery for us. This isn't like some, again, this isn't Jesus or the Father trying to be a killjoy to us. This is about having loving union with the Father to the greatest depths possible. So, here in chapter 7, there are limits and there are commands that restrict behavior. Why? Because it's about guarding and protecting us from behavior that will damage our relationship with our Heavenly Father and will damage our fellowship with Jesus. And, and the point is what Paul's making here and what God is making is that it is impossible to separate our sexual behavior from our spiritual lives. There, there is profa- a profound spiritual element to our sexuality that either embraces the goodness of God or embraces the depravity of our flesh. So, I think that when we, when we read chapter 6 of Corinthians, I think that there's this, the theme of that chapter is the idea of us having God-infused bodies. That we, meaning the presence of the Holy Spirit dwells in us. God is dwelling in us himself. The presence of the Holy Spirit is with us. 1 Corinthians 7 is an extension of this. The truth that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us speaks of us then, Paul goes on, speaks of us having God-infused lives. That he's, God is in our lives, how we're living, how our relationships are functioning. Being temples of the Holy Spirit doesn't just infuse our physical bodies, but it actually then relates to every part of our relationships, the way that we look and approach our sexual behavior and every part of our lives. So Paul is, he's, He's responding here to what the Corinthians had written to him. We'll, we'll read a few verses in a second. But he's responding to the letter that they had written to him. And, and he's, he's, he's responding back to some of the things they'd said. Now remember that Corinth was obsessed with sex as a city. It was absolutely, that was, that was at the forefront of the city. There was a Greek word at the time for debauchery. And that basically the word meant to live like a Corinthian. So that was, that was, the, that was how they were looked at in the Roman Empire. It's, it's the reputation that the city had, if you will. It, there was this permissive, anything goes kind of approach in Corinth. They had the temple on the hill overlooking the city, temple of Aphrodite, that, where there was a thousand prostitutes that were there at any time, basically just to serve the needs of the city. And it was mixed with, with worship, really weird, pervasive worship. And so the response of the church was to go, we're just going to reject all sexual activity. Like it's just, it's all bad. It's, it, we're best just to not even go there. 
to, to guard themselves against immorality. It was the ultimate safeguard. And, and Paul, he actually agrees with them. Because his ultimate focus is that those in Christ would have undivided devotion to the Lord. That was Paul's focus here. I, I want all of you to have undivided devotion to the Lord. And so, if our sexuality, if it's not brought into alignment with the gospel, Paul recognizes it can take us to very unhealthy places. But Paul also realizes, here he says, okay, but, but let's, let's reframe this a bit because what you're, what you're saying, Corinthians, isn't realistic. So let's, let's just reframe this whole kind of discussion. And so he addresses sexual behavior in light of marriage, singleness, and, and a few other issues. So let's read the first five verses. 1 Corinthians 7. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So I want to I talk here for a few minutes about the sacred gift of marriage. One of the questions that I came away with when I was, after reading this chapter and thinking about it was, how, how does my relationship with Jessica serve the Lord? And, and that's, that's something that I've got I've to hear from the Lord from, and I want to listen to him. But I... I one of the reasons I, that question came to me is we're influenced and tempted with the idea far more than we want to admit, I think, that ultimately relationships are about our personal enjoyment and happiness. We are inclined to have things about us. We want things to be centered and aligning around us. And really what Paul's getting at here. If I can really be just blunt, is relationships aren't about you. It's really just not about you. They are about honoring your spouse and about being obedient to God. And so, again, in Corinth, there's this widespread sexual promiscuity. And so the whole way that that culture operated was it served the pleasure of the individual. That was the norm. It just served whatever the individual wanted. Go and do as you please. And that, we've come full circle in our culture. That's, that's how we look at things in our culture. What, whatever serves me, go and do it. And marriage is about faithfulness. Marriage is about serving the other person. You actually give up your rights into your body within the covenant of marriage. 
<laughs> Does that sound kind of like, do you read that and go, what? What do you mean I'm giving up the rights to my body, to my spouse? Yes. Yes. And you commit to faithfulness with the one individual. It's, it is a call. It is such a call here to selflessness. It's not about me. There is a different way here being put forth to live amidst a sexually perverse culture. It's a very different way. And, and what Paul's saying, what, he's, what he says throughout this chapter, and, and really it's, it's very evident, is that sexual activity between a man and a woman is only, only within the context of marriage. That's clear. He says there, he says, do not deprive one another. It's interesting, that word there used is the same one he uses in chapter 6 when speaking about the believers taking each other to court and how they were defrauding one another. And he uses that same word to talk about spouses. So he's saying, don't try to defraud the other person of their rights within the marriage. It's not about us. Marriage. Grade 10, I had, a, I had an English teacher who, uh, he, was, he was grumpy at the best of times, most of the time. He's an interesting guy. He was like six foot four and thin as a rail. We called him like the, the, the green giant. And that wasn't very respectful. But he, he came into our class one morning and he was even more grumpier than usual. And there were some guys in our class that always liked to needle him. A little bit. They weren't very respectful. And so they're needling him just constantly in the class. Like, what's, what's wrong? I'm not going to tell you his name. What's wrong? What's wrong? And they say to him. And, and uh, finally, he looks at us, <laughs> grade 10 students. And he says with, with a scowl, my wife wouldn't give me any last night. <laughs> We're sitting there, what? What? Did he just say that? We've, but we've all heard the jokes of how women, how they wield real power over men in marriage, right? We've all heard the jokes. It's like commonplace. I mean, working in a secular environment for years, that joke was like so old. But it was always there. And this, this model for marriage here that Paul puts forth just throws out any sort of that control being present in a marriage. Like, just, he just throws it out. That's, that is not what it, a marriage that's, that's centered in Christ, that's not how it operates. He says, in fact, any, any break in a marriage is to be for a limited time, a break, okay? Nothing too long, Paul says. Don't, don't make it too long. And only, he says, so that you can devote yourself to prayer. In fact, it, it means there in the Greek that you may have leisure for prayer. It's really interesting. Every guy knows that prayer with their spouse seems to be the hardest thing to get going. For, for whatever reason, prayer with your spouse is like you can pray with just loads of other people. But when it comes to leading and, and directing and, and being the guy, the head of your marriage with prayer, it's like guys are like, you guys know what I'm talking about. 
You guys can all look at me. I know all of you guys know what I'm talking about. It's a battle to make it happen. Verse 5 mentions Satan. Paul mentions Satan in the context of all this. Satan is aware of how fundamentally important absolutely crucial prayer is in marriage. Scores of couples admit how difficult prayer together is for them, men in particular. Why? Is it because we're afraid of vulnerability and prayer really does, you, you have to be vulnerable in prayer? Otherwise, it's just faking. But Satan has two specific targets in marriages, and they're key. Eliminate prayer together and take away the joy of sexual union so that the people in the marriage will go looking for it elsewhere. So there's two takeaways for you married couples to implement. Very clear directives here. You can say it with a smile, but it's really important. I want to I quickly touch on two other areas here related to marriage that Paul addresses in this chapter. The first is the sanctity of marriage. Verses 10 and 11, 39 and 40. I'm not going to read it. But he really makes clear here the covenant of marriage being a lifelong commitment that is God's heart and desire for his children. It's interesting. There's no clause here that he mentions for um, divorce, unfaithfulness, like Jesus does in the Gospels. And, and there's been some wondering, like, why doesn't Paul give any clause here? And the thinking is that so many of the couples in Corinth would have been dealing with promiscuity in their relationships because of the culture they'd come out with, come out of. And so, he, no use drudging all that stuff up for them because. The Holy Spirit was at work in them. The Holy Spirit was at work with restoration and reconciliation. And so Paul was saying, keep going. God wants to restore marriages. What Paul really focuses on here with marriage is reconciliation, restoration, and commitment. And, and I, I speak from unwanted experience as, as a child growing up, seeing how the hardness of heart in a marriage just leads to so much pain. There was, there's a, I saw a story a little while ago of a church in the U.S., just incredible testimonies of all these marriages that have been broken in, in their church and, and marriages that looked like they were irrevocably broken and God began to do a work in marriages in their church. And there was all these testimonies, one after another, of how God had restored these marriages. They didn't look elsewhere. They came back together. Restoration, reconciliation. It was like, it was amazing. It was, and what it was, was this is the power of the gospel. That, that was what they were saying. The whole thing was, this is the power of the gospel to restore marriages. And, we, and the thing is, we need to hear that because we live in a culture of no fault easy divorce, and the church has largely embraced it. Why? Because we just want to avoid controversy. Like it's that, it's like we almost like that ship has sailed, let's not go there. The focus here is on reconciliation. Another scenario here that, that Paul touches on is when your spouse isn't following Jesus, but you are. 
what do you do? It touches on that in verses 12 to 16. So he, the situation is there's a, a Christian wife who's living with an unbelieving husband. or, and, and so he says in verse 14, an unbelieving husband or wife is made holy by their spouse, he says. And, and there's a very intentional Greek word there that Paul uses that means saint. Like they're made to be a saint. And so it's, it's not to get too deep into it, it's, it's a really interesting um, study to do. But Paul is admitting that the union between those two people can be really hard. But he seems to be holding out hope that because of the one spouse following Jesus, that there is great hope for that other spouse to come to know Jesus as well. And that God, he kind of, he seems to imply there in those verses, God is already at work in your marriage. So keep, keep going. And I think this is a really important truth to hang on to in our, our culture, to remain steadfast, committed, praying for God to move. Yeah, and I, I think what we're meant to see here again is that Paul is continuing on this whole thing of the, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Being temples of the Holy Spirit infuses every part of our relationships, every part of our marriages. It's meant to flow into every part. Our culture is so messed up right now when it comes to relationships. There's so many broken relationships, broken homes. We see it all over the place. And the gospel calls us, it's not, the gospel isn't calling us just to, to hang on and, and somehow just make it work, like because you're supposed to and, and stay committed because, you know, that's the right thing to do. That's not what this is calling us to. The gospel's calling us to, to have marriages that thrive. He's saying we can have marriages that absolutely thrive with the goodness of God where spouses are loving God, loving one another, experiencing the fellowship of Jesus in their lives, experiencing that in their, in their homes. Paul also talks here about reframing singleness. How have we looked at singleness in the church? And, and I, I believe that within these verses here, there is truth that reframes for us how we look at singleness. And I, I think that it's really desperately needed actually for us. Because I, I feel, at times I felt grieved by how we, we regard singles in the church as a whole. And just for how, you know, it's, it's almost like they're in a holding pattern until they can find the right person. Or then, once they find their spouse, then they can move into their full purpose. How many, how many single pastors do you see in evangelical churches? It's almost like a prerequisite. You, you better be married. Paul didn't see it like that, though. I, I, I was really struck reading this, how he didn't see it like that. He saw his singleness as a gift from God that allowed him to pour all of his life into the advancement of the kingdom. That, that was it for him. It was all about the advancement of God's kingdom. And it, it's a perspective that changes the way that we actually see marriage and the way that we see singleness. 
Our purpose is to advance the kingdom of God, married or single. And, and so I think sowing this into our children at a young age, you don't need to be married necessarily to fulfill your purpose in the kingdom of God. You don't need that person. That doesn't have to be the thing that has to happen for you to move forward in what God's calling you to. Not at all. Sowing into them that married or single, God has purposes for them, that he's laying out for them. And, and I think what it, the great thing, when we sow that into kids, what it does is it keeps them from entering into destructive relationships. Hopefully it teaches them, don't, don't get into that. You're secure in Christ. Paul's teaching on on marriage here and singleness, it it really challenges the pervasive view in our Western culture that, you know, the pervasive view centers around our our safety, our security, and our comfort. Those are the things that we really want. I mean, what do you see right now with the coronavirus? What do you see? Why the panic? Safety. It's, as, as soon as like, well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? We, we want to be safe. So we all, we, all, we all feel that. He says, to the, he says to, in this chapter, he says, to those who have wives, he says, live as though you had none. Paul says, he says, if to, to you who have wives, live as though you had none. Well, wait, hold on. Like, isn't that a contradiction? What do you do with that? I thought that this was a call to selflessness on the part of spouses. And now he's saying, live as though you didn't have a wife. So we, we got to frame the context for that. Verse 29 to 31. The intention is that we would hold very loosely to the things of this world. Business, pleasure, possessions, death, marriage. Paul touches on all of it there, that all of it would serve to grow our undivided devotion to the Lord. That it's actually, that's all serving our relationship with Jesus. And so it it really reframes it for all of us. Our relationships or lack of a relationship are under the Lordship of Jesus. He's, Paul says here, he says, I'm, not, I'm not trying to lay any restraint on you when it comes to marriage. That's not my intention. But I want to create, God's going to create God, godly boundaries for our sexuality. All right, I need to, I'm <laughs> looking at the time, I need to wrap up. This is, this is the challenge of this chapter. It's, it's long. Um, I want to just spend a few minutes here talking about 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24. I'm not even going to read it. You can read it um, if you want after. Paul talks uh, there about to live as we were called. So I mentioned this at the beginning. What, what are we called to? What are you called to? I mentioned it before. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. What are you called to? Into fellowship with Jesus. What does God, from these verses, what does God want to secure in you? Yeah. 
Specifically, your undivided devotion to him. Verse 35. So Paul gets into this thing of of live as you are called. And he talks there a little bit about um, the whole issue they had in the early church because of the, with, with Jews and Gentiles about circumcision, not circumcision, that being a sign of that you were really in the covenant of God. And so if you, were, if you weren't, then you, there was something you weren't in the covenant of God. And so you had to, you had, men had to be circumcised. And there was all this, this back and forth going on in the early church. And, and not to get into that. But really, for Paul, the circumcision isn't the issue here. And it's not for us either, thank goodness. That is not the issue we're dealing with. But it was obviously an issue at the time. Those who believed it displayed true faith. And, and so it was a big debate in the early church with Jewish believers and followers. Like, like what are we going to do with this? And Paul saw it, it was like this. Paul saw it as the issue that really wasn't the issue. That's how he kept coming. It's like, yeah, I, I understand, guys. It's an issue. You're, you keep harboring on this in the church. And he's saying, but that's not really the issue. The issue is in here. He's saying the issue is, are you wanting to live and obey the commandments of God? How is your heart? And kept coming back to that. And so the, the real underlying issue in that for us is, the temptation to believe that somehow we have to prove our worthiness to God. And, and the point is there of these verses that wherever we find ourselves, it is in those exact situations where you find yourself that God desires to work in our lives and change us to be more like his son. Wherever you are. The point is we're called into fellowship with the son. And do you know that that intimate relationship with Jesus is actually the most important issue in your life? That's, that's, that is the most important issue, if I can say it, in our lives. Single most important. How is your relationship with Jesus doing? Because having that intimate relationship and being with Jesus makes us more like him. So whatever, whatever season of life we find ourselves in, what, whatever situations, whatever circumstances, it is in those very things that God desires to meet us and transform us into the likeness of his son. When I, when I gave my life to Jesus at the age of 19, my, my life circumstances weren't great. I, I was living with my dad alone. My mom and my sister had moved off to another province and were living, and my relationship with my dad wasn't good, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I had been at a career college, had gone through a program that hadn't really ended well, and I was like going, I don't know what I want to do with my life. And I wasn't in a good place with the Lord. And long story short, I began to pursue Jesus. I began to trust in Jesus. And I had to walk through a ton of stuff. Still walking through stuff, but had to walk through lots of stuff, lots of pain in my past. But I kept looking to Jesus. 
I just kept looking to him. And God began to move in my life. It wasn't that he was immediately changing situations. He was changing my heart. He was changing about who, who I was as a person, who I identified as, who he was putting his identity in me. And God opened up a door for me to attend Bible school, and then he opened up a career for me in, the, in a, an industry for 10 years. He opened up a, this relationship with Jess. And the constant in all of that has been my hope in Jesus and his healing. I, I am a depraved sinner saved by grace. But I have Jesus. And I know that I know that I know that Jesus is real. I know that he loves me. I know that his father loves me. And that he desires to fill every part of my life with his presence. I know that. And I know that that he is committed to that in my life, come what may. So, if you're here today and you go, I, I long for a deeper relationship with Jesus, like, I'm with you. 110%, I'm with you. I want a deeper relationship with Jesus. If, if there's something being stirred in your heart, and I want to encourage you to take the next steps because there's steps, there's intentionality. I, it, my, yes, God rescued me, he saved me, he chose me, he rescued me out of darkness. I had to make choices. There was intentional choices I had to make to walk away from things, to walk into certain things, and to live differently. I want to encourage you to take steps. Perhaps you know there's stuff in your past in regards to sexual activity, shame, guilt, remorse, all of it. Jesus wants to set us free. That's it. Jesus sets us free. He sets us free when we want to have his freedom. And so experiencing this healing in our lives comes with intentional choices. It might be talking to someone. It might be saying, I really got to talk through some of these things. I really need to just work this out. It may be attending a set free retreat. That, that's, that's a great place to start if you're saying, I, I need to walk through some things and get some chains off of me and get free get to our set free retreat. It's, it's so good. Spending time in the word with Jesus, that's part of it, a huge part of it. Spend time in the word of God with Jesus. What does Jesus say? Come to me all who are weary, all of you who have all this baggage, all this stuff, come to me. I will give you rest. For your souls. Jen, why don't you come up? Let's pray. God, I, 
I thank you that you, you love us so much, Father. Jesus, that you so desire for us to have fellowship with you, that you care about the practical decisions and actions that we take and the way that they either draw us to you or they harm us. And you care. You care to speak to us. You care to let us know. You've cared and you love us so much to give us your word. And Lord, we just, we want to receive healing. And Lord, I, I want to pray for all of us. I want to pray where we are, are struggling with things in ourselves. We go, yeah, I, I know. I know that I need healing for that. I, I know that I, I need Jesus to work in me in that. Lord, we, we come to you with that. And we come to you in our brokenness and in our depravity. And we say, Jesus, would you work in us? Would you heal us? Would you set us free? Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your love that is deeper than anything we could ever, ever even imagine love that you have for us, the love that you have for your son, and your desires, that same love would be in us. That's amazing. That's absolutely astounding. We give you our hearts today, Lord. Amen.